You're listening to the Sports Blog New York Podcast. My name is Peter Kennedy, and I am your host. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, App, Google Play, SoundCloud, or on Spotify. Today, my guest is a national NBA writer for Bleacher Report. He does his own basketball podcast called Hardwood Knocks, where you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. And his name is Dan Favalli. Find him on Twitter, D-A-N-F-A-V-A-L-E. We had a blast talking hoops as we are less than one week away from the start of the NBA season. Now, I'm not going to come out here on a podcast coming out after the Yankees L to the Astros and not mention it. We did not talk baseball here, but we do see you Yankees. We see you Yankees fans. It ain't easy right now. The Astros are a good, good team. Don't get too discouraged. There's a lot of games to be played, but there's also a lot of basketball to be spoken about. And that's why Dan came in today on the SBNY podcast to talk hoops, all things about parity in the league and how it's changed year over year. One quick offseason changed a whole lot in the NBA. We discuss all of it, talk about some sleeping contenders, some sleeping playoff teams, also uh, NBA analytics versus the eye test and how you combine that and, and walk that line properly. And Dan is the perfect guy to do just that, as he also does work with NBA math, which on Twitter, if you follow me, you see me retweet a lot of their great stat stuff. Um, so stay tuned for this podcast. I think it's a really good one. You're going to enjoy it. Also, some great Knicks breakdown with Dan at the end, so don't miss out on that. Sports Blog New York Podcast, if you like what you've been hearing, don't be bashful. Go on to iTunes, Apple Podcast app, drop a subscribe, drop a rating, drop a review. Tell me what you think, what you want to hear more about. I love nothing more than seeing a review pop up on iTunes. It means the world to me that you care enough to not just listen, but then go a little bit further. Take like 30 seconds out of your day. If that, drop some thoughts on iTunes and Apple Podcast app. I love it. It means the world to me. But if you just sit back and relax and listen to the show, that also is fantastic. So now it's your time to do just that right here on the Sports Blog New York podcast with me, Pete Kennedy, and my guest, Dan Favalli. Welcome to the Sports Blog New York Podcast. My name is Peter Kennedy. I am your host. Joining me, a very special guest from Bleacher Report, NBA Math, and the Hardwood Knox Podcast, my guy Dan Favalli. First off, Dan, hello and welcome. Thank you for doing the pod with me tonight. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me, Pete. I'm thrilled because October is just a whirlwind and football is popping off. Uh, the Yankees are in the thick of the playoffs. Uh, we're actually recording right as the Yankees are probably about to lose to the Astros on Tuesday night. But all that is is fine to push to the side just for a moment because me and Dan are here to talk all things NBA. Dan, can you even believe that the season is a week away? Less than a week away by the time this podcast comes out? Um, I kind of can this year. It felt like the off season because everything with free agency happened before free agency even actually took place that we had a little bit longer of a lull. And then between everything that's been going on uh, since Team USA – uh, and everything since it's really just felt like it's been drawn out. So I'm I'm ready for it to get here. I'm working on a big project, of course, now. So the season's like now it's too close, but I'm ready for <laughs> the games to start to matter again, and and for for basketball Twitter to have some uh, more things to talk about other than preseason samples and <laughs> and a bunch of other bunch of other stuff. Preseason samples is NBA Twitter's favorite pastime, I believe. 
<laughs> they, they could really dive into you know plus minus from a preseason game, and and some people just look at it, scratch your head. Really, you're gonna go plus or minus right now? Like <laughs> we had. Uh... It, it is better than August basketball Twitter though. Like or August, early September basketball Twitter. That's a dark place. Like that's a dark place. Somehow NBA Twitter, more so than any other sport, never sleeps. You know, NFL is clearly the biggest sport we have in this country, but NFL Twitter, it it doesn't hit like NBA Twitter. Something different about it on there. NFL Twitter seems to take itself too seriously, and there's I've noticed there's like a greater appreciation for people uh, on NFL Twitter, like when there's more nuanced X's and O stuff. Um, but they just seem less fun, and I think part of it is that it's not as player driven, and that we're looking at you know fifty something roster spots per team. That fans you don't really have a ton of I care about every single. NFL team fans it's more so I care about my team or I only care about what's happening in the division that that my team is in right and then the draft is like the I think that's probably the only comparable point to the NBA is NFL draft versus NBA draft because of the quarterbacks but it's basically just the quarterbacks who even hit the level of some of these NBA draft guys uh, but it is interesting how it all breaks down. And NBA Twitter is a place where you and I both live very frequently. To find Dan on Twitter is at Dan Favale, D-A-N-F-A-V-A-L-E. And Dan, now it's time to talk about the season that is so close. So I wanted to start in a place where we can kind of talk at large. Obviously, you could bring up some some teams here and there. But the word parity has really been thrown out more this year than we could probably say in maybe the past decade if you really think about the Miami Heat era the Golden State Warriors era and even within those those two runs the the main competitors were often the same we had two two years of the Spurs we had four years of the Cavs so we, we really did see a lack of parity over the past decade but now it is a turning point for the NBA with the big twos with the player movement Durant leaving Golden State, Kawhi going to the Clippers and not joining LeBron. All these things come to a head now in the 2019-2020 season. From your perspective, covering the league, writing the league, following it all on Twitter and watching games, are you a little bit more excited for the unknown of this season, or do you kind of feel like it's more similar to the past? It's definitely more exciting from a fan perspective. Like the person who's watching basketball on me, it's nice to know that the regular season doesn't feel as fade a complete. And we had a taste of that last year in the, in the Eastern conference since LeBron left, we, everyone thought it was just going to be the Celtics. Um, but the bucks were kind of in there. The Sixers were in there too. So that there, there was parity there at least towards the top, um, from, from someone who has to now cover it and then contextualize, contextualize things. It's still fun, but it's also a little maddening because you go this time of year is when radio stations, podcasts, uh, my employer wants you to write about your picks and now you just, you can't come up with picks. It's so much harder to make these championship predictions and, and things like that. So that's part of the challenge. And it's, it's part, it's like, it's also very fun, but I do feel like there's going to reach a point where I'm going to flip flop weekly uh, daily on who I think is going to come out of each conference. And that's just territory. I myself at least haven't been in for the past half decade or a little bit longer. Yeah, luckily in the NBA, you kind of get a chance maybe, I don't know, 20 games in or so after you get to see the games. People start to forget about those preseason predictions a little bit. I'm sure there's some people uh, strangling on tw- or, uh, straggling on Twitter who want to remind you at every chance they get that you got something wrong or maybe maybe the rare person who's nice who says you got something right. Um, but in basketball, you it's so hard to really judge until you get into the thick of things. And, and this year, with all the movement, it, it's more true than possibly 
we have in a while. But the Eastern Conference is a is a story that will continue down the, uh, different roads because of how good some of the teams are at the top and how weak it gets towards the end of the playoffs. Is there a problem to you with the West being that much stronger, at least on paper, and seemingly it will come to fruition? But is there a problem with you uh, that the West is that much stronger than the East? It's definitely a problem in the sense that you're going to cut out a team, maybe two, that should that you want to see in the playoffs, and then you're just going to get this Eastern Conference team that that shouldn't be there. It's it's that's the case that it is every season. I'd say that probably the the magic number is two. If if we get rid of conferences or just give the sixteen best teams playoff spots, that obviously obviously would be ideal. Other than that, if they can just finagle some sort of realignment um, and put two teams in the East and then flip another two to uh, the West or I know they've looked at or they haven't looked at, but expansions, the buzzword around the NBA. And so you can do different things if you put the two expansion teams in the West and then you'll just be able to split up the conferences that way to give the East some more competitive teams. It, it is certainly, though, you know, you look at last year specifically, it would have been cool to have seen a team like the Kings in the playoffs, maybe instead of a team like uh, the Pistons at the same time, the, the records were different there, but if the schedules are changed. The Kings probably have a better record than uh, the Pistons or the magic who get to go up against all these different Eastern conference squads. And, and so it, it's definitely a thing. And I do hope at some point they get to a point where we don't have, have conferences at all. I think that's ultimately the best solution. I don't know that it'll ever get there, but I do hope it does. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting. I mean, in the the preview podcast that I've done so far and a bunch that I've listened to when we're talking about, you know, league pass teams or the teams that are most intriguing or some of the sleeper type teams that, you know, maybe can can surprise some people and make a playoff berth. They're all in the West. And meanwhile, it's that much harder for the Kings to make the playoffs, even though they could be projected maybe a fifth seed in the east and it sounds crazy that they're going to be 12th in the west and have a chance to be a top six seed in the east but it's true and that's unfortunate and it's something that the nba i'm sure will balance out naturally over time but i do expect it to be some sort of a talking point throughout this season when you know the 11 seed is 44 wins 45 wins and the eight seed detroit pistons get in the in the playoffs with 37 or something ridiculous like that so it's definitely a point of intrigue for the nba but i I feel like unless you just went straight no conferences if you make another drastic change or move one team to another conference or flop something you know all it takes is one more trade or a couple missed draft picks or a couple hit draft picks for that completely to flip and then you have the same problem again do you think conferenceless nba is ever realistic or is that a pipe dream i i used to think it was realistic now i almost tilt a little bit further towards it being a pipe dream just because of everything we know about how important sleep and recovery is and so the travel logistics that would be a little bit difficult where if they had to look at you know, uh, a New York, uh, the Brooklyn Nets having to play the the Golden State Warriors in round one. Uh, that might not that's not might not be a matchup that they really want to give the stamp of approval to. And again, with all those studies coming out, with the emphasis that's that's on sleep and recovery and load management, that seems to be a, the biggest roadblock. And so maybe the best thing we can hope for is is conference realignment. But there's not really a perfect way to do that uh, either, because how do you decide which team get gets really pulled out of the East, you go by location, but then you're going to have these owners that are going to be extremely pissed off. I would imagine if they have to leave the East, that's part of the reason why we'll probably won't see conferences abolished or if maybe they won't 
you know, I, I, I'm hesitant to say they definitely won't get abolished, but if they, if they don't, you really have to look at the owners in the East and there there are going to be some that put up a fight because if you're a Pistons, a, a magic Hornets fan, you know, you're not as likely to see your team in the playoffs and it gets harder to get back there. If you're just going with the straight 16 best records. Right. That's an interesting point. And you got to think about uh, some of those smaller market owners, because if you know you and I live in New York City, greater New York City area, it, sometimes we forget about the people in the middle of the country. And it's probably a problem for New Yorkers, but it's completely true. And the NBA has made it clear that they want to give a fair, equal chance uh, to some of those smaller markets. So they do not get forgotten. So when you're talking about the Hornets and Pistons, I think that's a great point by you. If they're truly against it, then conferenceless basketball is even further from the truth. Uh, but back to some of the teams here. We're talking parity. We're talking NBA. Just off the top of your head, maybe in the Western Conference, if you want to run through some team names, talk through some teams, whatever you want to do, off the top of your head, about how many teams do you think have a realistic chance to be the one seed in the Western Conference? Because I think the number is surprisingly big and normally isn't this big. Yeah, it's. I mean, you look at it, and I think you could probably talk yourself into the Nuggets, Jazz, definitely, the Clippers, the Lakers, certainly as well, and that's four. And then there seem to just be some wild cards. If things work out in Houston, that's not outside the realm of possibility, I wouldn't say. Golden State might be a little bit of a stretch, but then on the other hand, you look at it and say, well, couldn't Draymond Green, D'Angelo Russell, and Stephen Curry amount to uh, the best team in the Western Conference of the regular season, especially if they get Clay back? in late February or March or somewhere around there. I, I think the happy number that you could put it at is probably five. Uh, w- w- feels right. You know, those four teams that I named that seem like locks to be there, uh, Clippers, Nuggets, Lakers, and Jazz, and then maybe one of those just sort of wild card teams. Is it Portland? They always seem to overachieve. I'd be surprised if it was them. Uh, or you have the Rockets just with their star power or, again, the Warriors. It's funny because the Rockets had such a weird – season last year where they started off so poorly went on a crazy run without Chris Paul parts without Clint Capella and then they were literally one game away from being a two seed with all that and you change out Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook who you expect to be healthier play more games the fit is obviously in question but I totally believe that there's a chance we look up at the Rockets and they position themselves as a juggernaut in the Western Conference. Now, we obviously know the playoff woes of Harden and Westbrook in the past, but regular season, the woes haven't been as serious for these two guys. I, I personally, I I would put them uh, just with the with the Lakers as, as good a chance as them because with the Lakers, you can really see LeBron resting, Anthony Davis with some nagging injuries. They are a little bit of an older roster. They're not as deep. So do does LeBron and Anthony Davis once they're established as a top four seed, not put the pedal to the metal and go for the one. I think that's possible too, right? I would say definitely. I mean, Anthony Davis, I think the injury prone label for him has always been a tad overblown. It just seems like he's, he's been on bad Pelicans teams that shut him down towards the end of the season. And he does get injured a lot, but it's always something different and random. Like they never seem to be these injuries that are compounded on one another. They're just kind of random. And so we're even now he's dealing with the wrist injury and there is something truly terrifying though about LeBron coming off his first extended off season since 2005 visibly or at least behind the scenes a little bit upset that people are passing the the best player torch to Giannis Antetokounmpo right now it feels like he could have an amazing season that being said uh, he's smart enough to know 
that the playoffs are, are all that's going to matter. He's veteran enough to understand that. That's kind of how it's been for him for a while now. And so I would imagine he'll be, even if you don't think he's going to be load managed, I don't think his cruise control in the regular season is is going anywhere. And even a team like the Clippers, you could throw in there too. I would expect them to rest Kawhi Leonard a little bit. Uh, Paul George is dealing with a shoulder injury, probably isn't going to play in the middle of November. Maybe they monitor his minutes and, and games upon return. Those are two teams more so than most in the Western Conference, I would say, that to me aren't going to see the incentive of, of going for that top seed. And Yeah, and that's so interesting because if you think about a team like Denver and Utah, they probably look at it that the um, home court advantage can be that swinging piece of the puzzle for them once they do get to the playoffs. And they are a little bit younger when it comes to their stars. Do they know how to do cruise control a little bit like LeBron does. Now, granted, Anthony Davis probably doesn't know how to do cruise control because every time he's been playing meaningful basketball, they've been fighting for like a seven seed, not a top four <laughs> seed. Uh, but also another quick thing on the Lakers before I jump to some other stuff. Um, the LeBron MVP campaign has slowly started. I, I, I have first take on in the background of my desk every day at work. So I hear some of the crazy wacky subjects they talk about and they talked about LeBron as an MVP today and in my head and I, I also kind of snagged this from a Bill Simmons podcast it kind of set up and you just alluded to this that LeBron may be just pushing it off to Anthony Davis a little bit because Anthony Davis isn't as injury prone as we uh, think he is at times and if he's if LeBron's cruise controlling he could be setting it up for AD to take the reins to be the MVP of the Lakers possibly MVP of the league and truly pass off the reins of the franchise to him. You think that's a possible storyline that that exists? No. No, <laughs> you don't just, think? It's just it it seems more about LeBron. He's in his age 35 season. I'd just be surprised if he's locked in enough to go after that MVP award. If we see him average 10 assists per game because he's deferring to Anthony Davis so much, or maybe Anthony Davis goes down and he has to carry the Lakers afloat, that seems like the most efficient path to his MVP case and I don't want to predict a serious injury for Davis, and I don't even know if if he's the one who's feeding Davis. It kind of seems more likely that Anthony Davis might end up being the the MVP oh, candidate. Oh, that, that yeah, scenario. that's that's what I was saying. That LeBron. Oh, I'm sorry. Le, no, it's all good. I, I probably set it up a little bit confusing. I was a little wordy there. Uh, that LeBron is kind of setting it up for Anthony Davis to get the MVP. He's even made some comments already, like you know how. Uh, this offense got to run through Anthony Davis. Why have him out there if he's not getting all these touches? He's almost setting it up to the media to say, hey, guys, look at Anthony Davis. Like, he's the MVP here. You know, that, that's kind of what I was trying to get at, but maybe I explained it a little weird. Oh, that's my fault. No, that's completely my fault. I could see a scenario in which that happens. I do. My concern with every team that has two stars is are they going to cannibalize the votes with each other? For and so, sure. oh, it, yes. It, if LeBron does defer to Davis, there are going to be people, just like I was saying, if he's averaging a ton of assists, that are going to credit him with the Lakers' success most. And so I, I don't see either one of those two winning MVP, but I, I think the case that you laid out, Anthony Davis is right now is certainly stronger than LeBron James is. And even if LeBron doesn't end up deferring more to Davis or the offense doesn't run through him, which I, I, I would caution there's a possibility that it won't because we've kind of heard this spiel before where oh <laughs> yeah. LeBron's gonna play off the ball more LeBron's gonna defer to Kyrie and he did defer to Kyrie a bunch but LeBron is always still central to what his team does Anthony Davis is still just really good and it seems like that kind of got lost in his trade re requests so uh, last year like this is someone who I know the Pelicans weren't great but they never had a good supporting cast around him and he can do a ton of stuff offensively now it's not just him finishing 
possessions at the rim. You'd like to see him get a shot off quicker, but he can really do things off the dribble. He quietly averaged a career high in assists last year. So even if LeBron isn't making that effort where Davis has the team's highest usage rate or is the averaging the most points, Anthony Davis to me just has a stronger case overall because of not only what he's still going to do offensively, no matter what, but what he can do defensively do defensively. And what we know LeBron isn't going to care to do defensively during the regular season. Right. And honestly, the telltale sign that the NBA season lasts long is because about 25 games into the year last year, if you talked about MVP candidates, obviously it ended up being a Giannis Harden race. 25 games into the year last year, Steph was absolutely out of his mind, and then Anthony Davis was also putting up outrageous good numbers. So by the end of the year, Steph didn't play enough games. Anthony Davis was a villain in New Orleans, and nobody cared about him. He was only playing, whatever, 20 minutes a game when he came back, wasn't playing fourth quarters. It was very weird for him. But 25 games into the season, Anthony Davis and Steph were going absolutely bonkers. Yeah, uh, there was talk for Anthony Davis to be the first or the second best player in the league a quarter of the way through the season. And so he has that type of a ceiling. I'm, I think he's probably one of the most natural fits uh, looking at the superstars LeBron has played with next to LeBron. I just am very curious as to what it uh, all ends up looking like when, when it is together. But I, I would still peg him as of the two Lakers. Anthony Davis probably, to me, has a higher chance of winning MVP this year than LeBron does. Absolutely. Uh, enough on the Lakers for a second. I feel. Have you feel like you've been talking so much Lakers? You're almost sick of it already. Did the game didn't even start yet. Uh, I think I don't ever feel like I'm talking about one team too much. I know right. that there are small market teams that tire of hearing about the Lakers, the Celtics, the, the Clippers now. Um, but the, I'm not one of those people that shies away from talking about uh, the the most popular thing to talk about. Where it right. was, well, I don't want to talk about Anthony Davis's trade request before it comes. I'm I'm not above that. G- give it all to me. I'll indulge it. I feel that. Honestly, that's completely fair. When we did a most intriguing teams podcast a couple weeks back, we did personally purposely excluded the Lakers and Clippers because they're kind of naturally the most intriguing teams, and we're going to talk about them so much uh, early on and even before the season that we purposely went most intriguing elsewhere. But 100, percent I'm I'm with you honestly. The big stories are the big stories for a reason, and that's honestly though another reason why I like your podcast, Hardwood Knox. Um, you guys do a great job of hitting so many different teams. Like what you guys are doing right now with the previews is great fun, and I'm imagining people on Twitter like, "Yes, a Hawks podcast! Like, let's go! A national guy, <laughs> a national guy doing all Hawks!" Like, I like that you guys uh, incorporate all that stuff. I appreciate that. It's good stuff. Um, Well, another question, and you kind of actually teed it up for me again here when you mentioned the big two in Los Angeles. Uh, In the past, we've had a big two, big three league, depending on the era, right? And last year to this year seemed to be a shift from the big three to the big two based off of how these free agents decided to move. Some of the trades broke down because you have, obviously, Paul George and Kawhi and Clippers. We just talked about AD and LeBron. Kyrie and even though KD's out we have those two we also have Harden and Westbrook do you think this shift even if you go younger too don't forget about Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis uh you know the shift kind of went away from having three superstars and now having two superstars with a little more depth maybe behind these rosters is this a shift that you've noticed or something worth talking about or that will be noted as the season moves out and why do you think this happened if anything it's definitely worth talking about. What I've struggled to figure out is whether it's 
just a coincidence or if, if this is going to be a longer shift. I kind of lean towards the former just because if you look at the offseason landscape, I know there was a ton of cap space floating around, but there wasn't really too many opportunities for a big three to form. Uh, you know, Golden State, you could argue, still has one if Clay Thompson is healthy. But with Kevin Durant leaving, uh, they weren't a team that could, you know, have the cap space to go out and get another star. And yet they did anyway with D'Angelo Russell. So that situation was unique. But then you look at the Lakers, uh, LeBron and Anthony Davis, they had the chance to sign Quan Leonard. And just because he refused to sign with them, I don't know that that means the, the big three models necessarily dead because there just wasn't any other situations where the big three model had the opportunity to take effect. Uh, Houston only had James Harden and they had to give up a star to get a star. Um, the Clippers didn't have a star. And so getting two stars in one off season is, you know, that's pretty much unheard of to begin with. I think we'll, we'll know more about this maybe in 2021 when there are going to be a bunch of superstars on the market again. And my belief really is that we'll see another big three form there. It's, you don't think that, uh, there's already talked that the Warriors are going to try and figure out a way to get Giannis Antetokounmpo. You don't think the Clippers with George and Leonard opting out are going to figure out, try and figure out a way to to do the same thing. So maybe it's this like temporary hangover. Maybe it actually is more of a permanent shift shift, but it does seem like it was just more incidental than than anything this summer. Right. It turned out stars kind of wanted to get to anywhere they could that would make them a little bit happier. For Kawhi, it was the Clippers. You know, the, the Kawhi to the Lakers thing never truly felt like a strong, strong possibility. And also the Giannis rumors that are already kind of starting, like just kind of, but already kind of starting, are going to be out of control over the next two years. Um, but it's true. It, it, it's interesting to think about because we had this era where we had LeBron, Wade, and Bosh. And then we had the Warriors before Kevin Durant. They had the three superstars. And they had four superstars. Right. <laughs> so it is kind of out of control. But when you think about a pure setup of a team, right? Say all stars are equal, um, you know, two stars or three stars. The stars are on an individual basis are equal, right? Would you rather have two stars and a B-plus bench? Or would you rather have three stars and a C-minus bench? Or a D-plus bench? I don't know exactly where that that proper cutoff is for the bench uh, playing level. But is, is that something that you think uh, general managers are considering having two in a good bench or three in a bad bench? I'm sure that's something they definitely think about. I, I would always probably favor the star power though, just because to me that safeguards you against injury more than having depth would, because then you still have two stars to pick up that slack who are used to, shouldering these from scratch burdens and and having to ferry the hopes of these entire teams. But there definitely is an opportunity cost there because even if you start out with a really deep bench, you're eventually going to be priced out of it and, or, or it's going to age out of it. Like we saw with the golden state warriors where they weren't really necessarily priced out of it. You know, they still had Iggy Sean Livingston uh, last season. They, they still, I mean, they had DeMarcus cousins too. They lucked into him, but uh, with Cousins being injured and not himself, and then just all those other players getting older, they were, and the cost, of course, of their superstars, plus Iguodala, you're not able to assemble um, these bench guys on a off-season by off-season basis. You're signing them to, to shorter-term contracts, and you're constantly trying to pick up the pieces every summer, and each summer you have less money to give out because you're dealing with only the taxpayer's mid-level exception effectively, and that's then if your team is willing to to burn through that tool because we've seen the Rockets kind of avoid it um, in, in past seasons. So there's definitely, there's a discussion there. Personally, I, I'd probably always tilt toward the, the star power aspect of it. Give me three stars in their primes or, you know, 
an old LeBron James plus two stars in their prime <laughs> just because LeBron is LeBron. But th- there's definitely a discussion there, and I have no doubt in my mind that front offices have, have debated that to no end. And speaking of Daryl Morey, who hasn't been in the news at all, um, oh, <laughs> he he always said, I think his mantra really when building a team was, give me stars and we'll figure the rest out. And I, I, I think I lean with you there too. You know, unless you can be a team like the Nuggets or the Bucks, is where you look at their one super duper star, and then they just don't have a weakness on the rest of the roster, more or less. I think the Nuggets are deeper than the Bucks at this point. Um, but other than that type of setup, you just get all the stars you can and figure the rest out, and grab your PJ Tuckers, your Austin Rivers, grab your Danny Greens, and guys who really know their role, the Jared Dudleys. I think Laker fans are gonna fall in love with Jared Dudley. I think every fan that has Jared Dudley on their team falls in love with Jared Dudley. I know Nets fans were going crazy for him last year. So it is interesting. Like, do you want to pay mid-high money for an average guy who's not really changing games that much when you could bundle two of those together for another star and figure the rest out later? It's a discussion that I think we will come across throughout this season. Uh, It's definitely tougher when you have, you know, Danny Green. The Danny Green and the Jared Dudley are perfect examples. You know, Dudley making the minimum essentially is a guy that any contender can get then he's not pricing himself out anywhere but danny green if that's the type of player you're kind of punt uh, you're you're taking on and and that's costing you the big three he's making you know almost 15 million dollars a year you can't even get two of those players really for giving up a max slot and so that's sure. where the trade-off really gets gets complicated i think i i i just agree with you it's just a d- discussion that i feel like is going to be probably will just never end uh, right. because even when we have these, you know, even if there was a Kawhi, LeBron, and Anthony Davis team, we'd probably reach a point where, yeah, this season the bench is fine, but we'd reach a point where the bench isn't doing enough and we're having that conversation all over again. Right, and every 15, 20 years, if somebody's lucky, they'll get a contract like Steph Curry had before his current contract where, you know, he was hurt or didn't quite develop, locked in for four years at a pretty cheap number and changes the whole direction of a franchise because um, those things can happen. I mean, for a while, Kemba Walker was on a pretty team-friendly contract, and if the Hornets weren't the Hornets, maybe they would have done something with it. But, you know, Nick Batum and Bismack Biombo and Zellers, and they didn't quite get it done. Or Biombo, <laughs> is Biombo, was he a Hornet? Am I mixing that up? No, yeah, he's he, still a Hornet. He's a Hornet, right? Yeah, it's tough. But anyways, uh, I, di- I digress for a moment. Uh, Sports Blog New York podcast, Pete Kennedy and Danfa Valley here. Don't forget to check out Dan on Twitter, at Danfa Valley. Don't forget to check out his podcast on iTunes and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Blue Wire Pod, shout out to them as well, which uh, I host the Hardwood Knox podcast. Check them out on there. And if you have been enjoying the show, hit us on Twitter. Tell us what you think. Give us some NBA takes of your own. And on iTunes app, podcast app, drop a subscribe, rate, and review. But now, Dan, I want to move on. Um to some specific teams here. And because we just talked about some contenders, let's put the contenders on pause for a second. I want to talk about some of the sleeper playoff teams. You know, guys, uh, the teams who can be in that 6 to 12 range who are going to be ultra exciting. We talk, we, we kind of mentioned some of the Western Conference teams, but is there any team or two teams that stand out to you that aren't a lock to be a top 4 or 5 seed, but you have a strong feeling they can punch their way into the playoffs and really be an exciting team this season? Um, I'll do one from each conference. I'm fascinated by the Indiana Pacers because I feel like they might have done a little too much over the offseason. Um, I'm wondering what their defense is going to look like when you lose Thaddeus Young. You still have Miles Turner, but Victor Oladipo is injured. You don't really have a, a true point guard, which was a problem last year. Now you're relying on Malcolm Brogdon so much. And yet 
I could see if Oladipo comes back in December and he works through the rust by January uh, after that you know ruptured quad injury, they could be really scary because they they do have more offensive firepower than they did last year. It is kind of reliant upon a bunch of iffy shooters. Jeremy Lamb, probably an average shooter, a good mid-range guy, but average three-point shooter. TJ Warren shot the lights out last year, but that was the first season he was ever really hitting threes. Will they let Myers-Turner take more threes? Demantis Sabonis still isn't shooting threes. Malcolm Brogdon's a really good shooter, but he's never taken a ton of threes, and he doesn't take these off-the-dribble threes. And now he's going to have the ball in his hands more ostensibly. How's that? going to work out still just with all that talent on paper if they end up hitting and, and Oladipo comes back uh, that's a team that I wouldn't want to face in the playoffs in the Eastern Conference no matter what seed you are it, we can easily say that Milwaukee and Philadelphia are overwhelming favorites but I don't think that they're anywhere near the point of the the Golden State Warriors of, of the years past where they were the only team where the first round victories kind of felt like a format formality so if the pacers are healthy they just seem like they're gonna end up being a squad to keep an eye on yeah and so so bonus is a guy who i know the analytics love him his efficiency is off the charts he moves the ball well he plays strong defense he rebounds he does a lot of things well and when i think about the indiana pacers i think about a team that doesn't get dogged you know they very rarely show up not prepared they don't they don't throw out a lot of duds. You know there are some teams out there that can be rolling and then all of a sudden they show up at phoenix or they show up against uh, a lower Eastern Conference team, like not the Magic now because they're actually decent, but you understand what I'm saying, and they kind of just throw out a bad performance. The Pacers seem to bring it every night on defense, which is huge, and when they had Old Depot, they had their star. So it is interesting if they can hold water uh, until then. They also lost Bogdanovich, which is a tough scoring punch, but TJ Warren, Malcolm Brogdon are two guys who have played lesser roles, even though, Brock, honestly, Brogdon didn't. He was a stud for Milwaukee. I thought he was their second-best player at many points that season last year. You, do you think Brogdon can step up into a uh, a higher-usage player? you think he can really pull that off? I do in some sense that there's been this weird debate in subsections of Bucks Twitter, who's the better shooter, Brooke Lopez or Malcolm Brogdon, and they were really just resting on Brolo's volume. I think we could easily see Malcolm Brogdon up his volume from three-point range and still hit his shots at a high clip. He also gets to the rim more than people realize. He's out in transition more than people realize. That's something the Pacers could use, particularly with Oladipo out. I don't think he's ever going to be the guy that can score, though, consistently off the dribble in the half court. He's not someone that you can trust to take off-the-bounce jumpers. I question how he's going to be as a primary table setter now, even without Oladipo. So there's that give and take there. I definitely think his shooting can sustain at a higher volume, but I don't think you're going to see him hit these shots that have a higher degree of difficulty or headline in above average offense on his own. Right. If you're talking about strictly shot creating, even a guy like Terry Rozier has more off the dribble game probably than Brogdon, though Brogdon's a way more consistent, way more solid player all around. I think Brogdon's a perfect fit next to Oladipo. He can then take pressure off the ball handling from Oladipo, so Oladipo doesn't have to be an acting point guard all the time. Um, so I think that combo is great, but until December, until Oladipo comes back, Brogdon's uh, ability to keep this team afloat is going to be very interesting. I think they come prepared. Um, I think Sabonis actually said something about Oladipo in the gym, how he looks like a freak already. Like He looks 
Like he's a hundred percent back, even though he's still months away from playing basketball again. So it's gonna be interesting. They're they're a really intriguing team. I do agree with you. And they they always just fly under the radar. Even last year, once they lost Oladipo, Bogdanovich was balling out, and then they really gave a a uh, I thought a heartful performance in the playoffs, even without their star. Yeah, they're. I mean, they can look ugly when they don't have their star, and I think that's what they tried to safeguard themselves against this season and maybe they did a little bit. I still don't look at this team though and think that they have enough off the dribble creators. Maybe Aaron holiday kind of blows up this year. He, he flashed um, a lot offensively last season and in the few minutes that he played, maybe this is the year that Jeremy lamb just hits more of his threes. He's a guy that again, could be that second or third ball handler. Maybe they just still need that first one. Even with all the depot, you'd like to have them, the pure point guard designation is sort of dead, but you would just like to have have them employ the the conventional playmaker to some extent, that guy that you could trust to go out and get you the the seven or eight assists per game or six assists <laughs> per game. And that's why it, it seems even like when it did look as if Mike Conley might be headed there at the trade deadline, it almost right. felt like that was a big loss. Oladipo's injury, of course, changes that calculus because you don't want to go all in and then still kind of have a lost season. But that's the type of player that it seems like they really need. Uh, any thoughts on their rookie pick, Goja Bitaze, Bitaze? I can't say his name. Bitaze. I think it's Goga Bitaze. Goga Bitaze. There we go. I thought it was Goja. Oh, well, anyways. Uh, he's a big man who has skill. He is you know, loved by some of the scouts out there in the draft. Uh, fell to the Pacers. Any hope in him, even though it was a little bit weird to draft a big with Turner and Sabonis already running around? I I just don't necessarily understand the pick. I guess at that spot you take the value, but he's not someone that should be playing beside Turner, and so they won't. And there are a lot of questions about whether his foot speed is going to hold up at the the defensive end. So it just seems like a very curious move, unless you really think that maybe you're going to end up moving on for Miles Turner because you're going to pay uh, Demantis Sabonis, you want those two to play together. I don't know how that defensive combination would look. I'm kind of in the camp where I think that Sabonis might be a little underrated defensively, but he's not. He shouldn't be the back line of a defense on his own. And and so if you have, especially if he's at the floor and playing alongside someone bigger who's slower and, and not going to be a, a great rim protector, maybe they've seen something in him uh, that, that makes them think he is going to hold up defensively. And then you appreciate that range that he has, or maybe they just don't care because he's going to be on the rookie scale. His draft right. wasn't particularly deep. So why don't you take the upside and, and we can bring him off the bench and we'll be content with that. Right. If this guy turns into a sharp shoot and stretch big and a guy who can do some other things offensively, he looks like he has a nice feel for the game. And they, I don't think they'll be too upset about the pick if it works out. Um, so now move. let's move on to your other Western Conference team of a similar ilk. I assume this team will be a little lower on the projection total just based off the East versus West comp. But who do you got in the West as a, a sleeper playoff team, a team who you'll think would be very exciting. I really want to pick the Kings and I think they will be exciting, but just compared to last year, I don't think they're actually going to wind up being much better. It, to me, it could be a scenario where they actually win fewer games like 37 or 38, but their point differential is significantly better. And they, they beat, uh, better teams than maybe we're used to them seeing. It's just the West is so deep. It's not really paved for them to make that, that substantial leap. Uh, right. So the, the, wrong... win, the win total leap, they may look better, but their win total may not see it. And they're going to be exciting because they're fast. I want to see if the NBA's maybe caught on to that uh, because they, I mean, they had Harrison Barnes getting out in transition last year when he came over. And so that I don't know. I think that's something defenses will eventually catch on to. 
the team, and I'm so hesitant to buy into them because I, I don't like looking at preseason um, as th- this barometer for success. And I, I also don't like rushing younger teams uh, that should have more gradual timelines. The Pelicans, though. Oh, yes. Just, oh, my God. Right? I don't. It's not even just Zion for me. It's I pick a player every year, sometimes two, and I put it on Twitter so that people can have the receipts that I'm always fascinated with leading up to the draft. And I think is going to be really good. That isn't receiving enough love. And this year's pick was Nikhil Walker, uh, Alexander. And so I apologized in advance for him having a terrible career, but he's looked <laughs> so good. Just the questions about his lack of athleticism. He's really just been able to create separation with step step backs. Seems with nice vision in the half court uh, the way Lonzo ball kind of has this team playing when, when he's on the floor, they're going to be so fast during the regular season. And then you just look at them on paper. They have 12, 13 players, at least that would be in any other rotation. And maybe I'm rushing them just because you have Brandon Ingram, not a finished product. And yet you need to give him reps to see if he can play. I, I tend to be bullish on him, but you do need to figure out, can he play team offense where he's going to catch the ball and then look at the rim if he's from beyond the arc and actually shoot it as opposed to passing it up or dribbling into these uh, ugly two pointers. Cause he does seem to have a nice feel for the game on the ball, but you, you need him to do more than that is Lonzo ball. Uh, we've seen him hit some step backs. He's not actually shooting that well from three and we'll get out in front of this to all the Lakers fans that are trying to point out that he's had the step back for a while. We all know that he had the step back at UCLA, (laughs) but if he's going to hit threes at an average clip, that becomes big for the Pelicans. If he just becomes more aggressive with the ball in his hands, that's huge. So there's just, there are a lot of wild cards here. Still, uh, JJ Redick has just been amazing. These past few seasons, guys are supposed to age down and his game is aged up. He, I, I know Philly didn't run a ton of pick and roll, but he was, wildly efficient out of the pick and roll uh, for them during his, his two seasons there still moves well without the ball, obviously a liability on defense, but if you're getting playmaking out of him, in addition to team offense, it might not be that big of a deal. Uh, Derek favor is one of the more underrated guys in, in the NBA. A lot of people really like Jackson Hayes. Uh, the list just really goes on. I'm an Etwan Moore guy. Just, yes. I want someone who can hit standstill threes and will try on defense. Uh, Josh Hart, uh, he's sort of up and down. There's just so many, quality players. Then Drew Holiday, of course, who's who's a top 25 player in the NBA right now. So you can argue that they do have that star already. And depending on how good Zion is, they might have two. And I don't know that they'll win enough games to enter the playoff pitcher. Uh, but maybe it's a situation in the West where you have so many good teams that it doesn't take 48 to get into the West because everyone's taking victories away from each other. And so if they can get to 45 or 46, that's good enough for the eight spot. That's just a team I'm going to be fascinated with though, right from the jump. I'm happy you went there because you know, a lot of people will try to get a little more cute and you could have went with the Mavericks or the Suns or a team like that, that they do have their own version of upside because you want to be different. Everyone's talking about the Pelicans, but when you just look at this team and like you said, off the bat, it's not even all about Zion. Zion gives this energy to the Pelicans, uh, to the franchise, to the city that was super necessary but I don't know if you know this about me. I'm a huge Lonzo Ball guy. I love how he plays the game of basketball. I know the shooting has been a thing, but I love his defense. I think the defensive backcourt, you mentioned J.J. Redick as a liability on defense. I think that's fine because you look at the rest of their team, Drew Holiday and Lonzo Ball might be the best defensive backcourt in the NBA. They can cover right. up for J.J. Redick. Zion might be one of the most switchable defensive players in the league, maybe not this year, but maybe towards the end of this year. Depends how quickly he picks it up. So they can hide J.J. Redick, I think, with – with ease in a way, kind of like the Sixers were able to do when they were rolling 
this team is fascinating. Drew Holiday probably should have more than one all-star to his name. And this year, if the Pelicans are winning games off the bat, I think he has a real chance at it, to be honest. Yeah, he would. I definitely wouldn't say he doesn't have a chance. The, the guard situation in the Western Conference pool is just super tough still. It, it is ridiculous. I mean, Dame, Steph, uh, Clay's hurt. James Harden, James Harden Russ. Russ. Oh. Yeah, it's... It's a nightmare. And Luka Doncic, I guess, is a forward, but I think he's an all-star this year as well. Uh, the Pelicans, I right off the bat, when these trades happen, when the draft happen, I wanted to get out there and say, hey, everybody hit the brakes, you know, relax. They're not going to win 50 games this year. They may not even be 500. They will be fun, and they're going in the right direction. But then when you see them actually play, and like you said, it's just preseason, I agree, there is an energy to this team that uh, you can't discount, that you can't take away from them. They will not be an easy out at any point, and uh, they have a real chance to turn this into an extremely fun season with a puncher's chance at the playoffs. I love the Pelicans. They're everybody's league pass team. Thankfully, they have 30 national TV games. Do you think any chance the national TV games come back to bite them a little bit? Maybe they're not quite ready for that spotlight, or is that not something that worries you? Uh, I tend not to read too much into that, but it's, it's certainly possible. I mean, they rookies tend to hit a wall a lot of the time. We saw it with Luka Doncic last year. His efficiency just fell off a cliff. And so Zion could be dominating for the first 20 to, you know, 40 games of the season and then kind of tail off. And then if he's on national TV, another, let's say 10 times, and that's what people see, that could always be a problem. And they, you know what? I've, they probably, they probably shouldn't be a league pass team anymore because they're definitely above the threshold of right. uh, national TV games <laughs> to not be a league pass team anymore. <laughs> what do they have? Like the fifth most or something like that. They have a lot. It, it's up there. I know they're uh, already on opening night. That's just, <laughs> that's, that's just bizarre to me. It is crazy. And it's going to be exciting. It, it really is. When that first Lonzo to Zion full court, half court, whatever it is, type alley-oop that happens in real NBA regular season basketball. Twitter's going to blow up. Instagram's going to blow up. Everybody's going to be going crazy, and I am here for that. I am all the ways here for that. I can't wait for it. Um, All right, let's switch pace here to some of the contenders. Now, I want to call this sleeper contenders, teams that we expect to be good, but teams that we don't yet give the credit to uh, become maybe a championship team, if that makes sense. So, you know, the Lakers, Clippers, Bucks, and Sixers, I'm going to kick them out of this one. They are the four front runners to win the NBA championship. Disregard those. Give me a sleeper contender that you don't think is just a regular season good team. You think it is a true championship contender good team. So you eliminated the Sixers, Bucks, Clippers, and Lakers? Mm-hmm. I this is a tough one. Did I, I wait, did I did I take your pick there? <laughs> no, okay, it's just okay. I, I was just trying to make sure I had the right teams. Gotcha. Uh, I want to pick the Nuggets just after the Jeremy Grant trade. I like them a whole lot, and again preseason. But Michael Porter Jr.'s looked a lot better defensively than I thought he was ever supposed to be. And so one of the things that sort of worried me about them was yes, they have Jeremy Grant now, but their wing defenders. It's it's just still not a great situation. You want guys presumably who can both defend and handle the ball in the wing spots and who are properly sized. And so maybe Michael Porter Jr. gives them that first type of player. The Jazz are sort of interesting here. Uh, I almost want to pick the Warriors too. I'm a lot higher on them this yes. year than everyone else. The, the Rockets are right there. I think I'm just going to stick with the Nuggets though. They're they're super deep and probably the bigger danger than what I was just mentioning, Mike Malone touched upon, is that they have so many guys who are going to be free agents after this year. 
that is there going to be a risk when some aren't playing or that when they are on the court, they're going to be playing for themselves instead of the team. Still, they're just they're so deep and they have so many different lineup permutations now. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot of Paul Millsap at the five with Grant at the four when uh, Nikola Jokic is sitting this year. And if Jamal Murray kind of takes a step forward, we saw moments from him in the playoffs where he was carrying their offense. There are also moments when he disappeared. If he can balance those out a little bit better, they're they're just going to be a, a very a scary team. And they're much they were fine defensively last year, but they're much better set up now with Grant. And again, if Michael Porter Jr. can defend well enough to even just stay on the floor, that that's a big boon. Uh, yeah, we were talking before about how big three or big two or a team like the Nuggets with one true superstar and a bunch of just really good players. That's the Nuggets, right? And Jeremy Grant is the perfect type of guy who doesn't need the ball but will do so many great things. His corner three game uh, got way better in the past year. His defense is undeniable. I love that pickup there. And then even just the range of guards they have from Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, Will Barton, Malik Beasley, and Monty Morris. All of those guys were able to make extremely positive impacts last year, sometimes all together, sometimes when somebody was banged up. I know Gary Harris went through some injury last year, and Beasley and Morris came on the scene. That was an awesome backcourt situation they had based on depth, but who really comes on and solidifies himself as the guy who's going to get 18, 20 points every night? It seems to be Jamal Murray. He got paid. He has to prove it. My question is at wing. We talked about Grant, talked about Porter, but when you have a team, I don't know if it's just me because I'm a fan of this guy, when you have a team where Wancho and Ron Gomez can't even get minutes, like <laughs> is that like is that crazy to you too? Because I think that guy's freaking good and he could shoot the shit out of the ball. Yeah, he's he's really good. I actually I don't really fancy him a three though, which is part of the problem. And I also think he was dealing with a core muscle injury, I think it was last year. And so I don't know if they just didn't want to try and reintegrate him into the lineup again midseason because it certainly didn't do well with Will Barton. That's just another question about this roster is can they get 2017 2018 will barton back so the roster is just so deep i mean you look at monte morris is one of the best backup point guards in the game and so they they just randomly have you have nicole Jokic, but you have one of the best backup point guards in the game uh tory craig really serves a purpose defensively if he started hitting threes at a league average clip it's even i'm a jared vanderbilt stan it's just this guy can really rebound and and run the floor. I'd love to see him get minutes, but you can't. And they they sort of luck into Bobel on the draft. This was a guy who was considered a, a top five pick before his injury, top seven or at least top ten, and they picked him up in the middle of the, the second round. It's This team is, if everyone was healthy, they could arguably have 15 rotation players on the roster. I'll say conservatively now even, you remove Bobel, you remove Vanderbilt, then you still have 13 I, I, like because Michael Porter Jr., most teams that have him are going to play him just because of where his draft stock was a little over a year ago. So it's it's absurd how deep they are. Malik Beasley, another guy that a lot of people have on breakout watch after what he did last year. Just just so much talent. If Gary Harris is kind of the same, he was dealing with injuries too last year. Didn't really shoot the three ball well or finish as well at the rim. He's looked better in preseason. He dribbled into a transition three without like even waiting the other night in preseason. And I've never seen him react that quickly. So this team, this team is scary and it could end up being a lot better than I think people expect. It almost feels like everyone's waiting for them to be sort of lateral. You know, maybe they win 54, 55 games again, but they they could be, there always seems to be this team that really flirts with the 60 win mark or hit it 
they could be the team that does it. Hundred percent. They are my pick for if you had if I had to pick a lock to be a one seed. I think in the Western Conference, I would pick the Nuggets. I think uh, continuity, depth, they can deal with injuries. They're my pick to be the sixty win ish team in the Western Conference, and it, it's so lucky for them. And it's obviously they deserved this this luck that they got. They were able to pick Michael Porter Jr. because they knew if they missed on a pick, they could survive. They could still be one of the best teams in the league. I remember the Knicks fans, obviously in New York, I'm a Knicks fan. Um, everybody wanted them to pull the trigger on Michael Porter Jr. on draft night two years ago. And I was like, the Knicks can't they can't risk that. They don't have <laughs> they don't have enough of a foundation to take a big swing like that. You need to take a guy who is gonna be an NBA player for ten years and not going to possibly be out of the league with injury. And you hate to say that, but it's true when you're talking about the team like the Knicks. When you talk about the Nuggets, they are more than okay with saying, yo, MPJ, get right, get healthy. You're going to be helping this team before you know it. But this year, it's more important for you to get right. We don't need you yet. And that's a luxury they had from great drafts, from building a great team, and hitting on a Nikola Jokic superstar in the second round. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the other thing. Finding Nikola Jokic in the second round just completely reinvents where where this franchise is. What would you say um, he ends up in the MVP race? I'm not going to go ahead and say he's going to win the MVP. I don't think he's a favorite for that. He's a top five favorite, but not number one. Um, you think he's top five, top three this year MVP race real quick? Yeah, I think he ends up being top three. What was he last year? He finished third or was he fourth? I can't even remember what what it was for him. I think he, he was, was third or fourth. Was he third? Who would have been third? It was obviously Giannis Harden. Was then, was it was it Paul George was third. That's Paul right. Paul George, George was right. crazy. I, then, I think he finishes solidly in the top three this year. Giannis is going to have to be right there. But, you know, we talked about the, the superstar duos already. But part of what having what seems like more superstar duos instead of this consolidation of big threes is they're going to take votes away from one another. You know, now all right. of a sudden uh, Russ is going to take more votes away from Harden than Chris Paul did. Uh, Stephen Curry and Draymond Green, I could see them stealing some votes from one another. Uh, you know, Kevin Durant's not healthy this year, but LeBron James and Anthony Davis, certainly Paul George and, and Kawhi Leonard. So Giannis Antetokounmpo is very, I think, solidly needs to be the favorite, but I right. don't think there's a clear number two after that. Maybe Might Damian Lillard if, if the Blazers outperform. So yeah, I could see... It wouldn't. I would expect Jokic to be in the top three, so it's obviously not going to surprise me if he's, you know, first or, or second. Yeah, I can't wait to see this guy play, man. He's my favorite guy to watch in the league. I love me some Nikola Jokic. Um, also, Damian Lillard, I believe. Correct me if, if you know this. I think he's been on the past like three MVP ballots, maybe fifth in all of them, but he's been on all of the ballots because he's just been incredible. Um, all right, Dan Favalli and Pete Kennedy on Sportsblog New York podcast. Couple more topics to get to quick. Uh, I just want to talk about this overarching topic because you're you're in it. You do the NBA math stuff. Your podcast definitely incorporates analytics, I think, very well into it. Uh, you talk about it on Twitter, but you also watch basketball, and I think that's really important. <laughs> <laughs> and some people, some people don't. I mean, it's funny to say out loud, but there's a lot of people on Twitter who don't really watch basketball. Maybe they watch just their team, and then every other player who they spit hot takes about, this guy stinks, this guy's great, they don't actually watch them. So you... Dealing with Twitter um, trolls and dealing with your writing and all this stuff, how do you balance the analytic game to your eyeball game, if that's a, if that's something to call it there? Because I know I know you care about both uh, a lot. It's I think you use them to inform each other, and I respect everyone who is really an X's and O's savants. Where I'm not going to go 
and be able to recognize all these sets that are happening in real time. And I'm never going to make um, the videos in part because uh, that stuff does interest me and I read about it, but that's just not, I want, I'm here, I'm going to be more of like snarky and I'm going to delve more into the analytics and I'm going to talk more about sort of the storyline stuff. Uh, so, but it's, it's looking at, it's not just looking at the numbers and then making those assumptions. It's, is, it, does that kind of match up with what you're seeing in some of the games? And I think what's an underrated part of all of this too is reading, which okay. blends everything together is so, you know, look, I'm not going to, I cover the league from a national perspective and I have no delusions that I know the Atlanta Hawks better than someone who covers the Atlanta Hawks on an everyday basis, or even a, a fan a clued in fan who watches every single one of their games. And that's not my job because I'm, I'm choppering in for a few Hawks games at a time. And so you read the reporters who are around the Hawks, you read the guys who are breaking down the X's and O's you watch them and read about that stuff. I think that's really important to informing opinion, uh, informing your opinion as well as following smart people who are in the know with these certain teams. And it's all just sort of coalesces into this, nice balance. And I don't necessarily think that it should coalesce into that nice balance. I should say it's definitely not there yet. It still f feels like, uh, analytics versus eye test is, is warring. And there are people, it's not even just as someone who appreciates the numbers, there are people on the number side who really hit too hard with them and lean on the numbers too much. And I don't pretend that my coverage is going to be the best. I'm not even saying it's, it's the correct answer, but I think they're everything is just what needs to incorporate it. And I also, like I said before, just don't think we take into account um, how imperative it is to read other people's point of views on all of these different matters and, and teams, team schemes or team lineup rotations, team predictions. And, and so I try to consume as much content for every NBA team as possible to try and get to, because that contributes to the feel that I think that I have uh, for, for the league. And, and that's just where, I'm at my coverage now after doing this for about a decade. So are you saying that if people had an open mind when reading each other's <laughs> tweets and articles that they may be more versed in, in the game of basketball? <laughs> yeah, it's look, look there's sometimes where you have to it's you, like the, the trolls are going to be out there and there are sometimes where you know, for me the Twitter persona I have there are people that are shocked to find out that I'm much nicer in person because I'm always <laughs> sarcastic on Twitter. And so if you're going to put yourself out there in that manner, you have to be prepared for it. Um, and I used to get really bent out of shape when I first started about uh, people who wouldn't agree with me or who were rude or threat wanted me to die or wish that I get cancer and all that <laughs> oh stuff. My God. But now it's easier to like just let it go because they're doing it to like incite this response. And so for the most part, I can really just let it slide by and and laugh at it. Uh, you can mute people if you're if they're being like repetitively abusive. But I do admit I might not be the best person to ask because there's I have to accept that I bring a little bit on it on myself because Twitter doesn't have a a sarcasm font. And I'm not saying I'm funny. <laughs> I'm not pretending to be funny. But if you're going to try and make jokes, there's a chance that they're not going to hit or they're they're going to irritate. I think the sarcasm font is a great idea. The only problem with it is that I think some people would just only tweet in the sarcasm font. <laughs> but it's just like that's what that's what some people do, though. And yeah, so it's, there for are some sure. things that you could clearly tell is sarcasm. But I made a joke about I think ESPN tweeted out a video of Luca and Porzingis a couple weeks ago, and I like captioned it with 
uh, they were like, they're going to be a problem already. And I had the most terrifying 11 seed in the NBA. <laughs> and so, so Mavs fans were pissed. And like, that's something that I guess you could take as, as being seriously. So in those kinds of situations, it's, I, you know, you bring it on yourself and you have to accept it. That's hilarious. I'm glad you can dish it and take it. I think that's the way to do it. I don't have uh, quite the personal following where I get a lot of people coming at me, but every once in a while when I do, I, I try to have fun with it. You can't really, you know, you can't. It's but yeah. look at the end of the day, we, we cover a game. And there are people that like do really important stuff and I'm not one of them. That's just how I look at it is I'm here to, I will work hard, but I'm also here to have fun because I'm fortunate enough to cover a basketball game for a full-time living. And just because it's something that is a full-time living doesn't mean that you you can't have fun with it. And I don't necessarily, there's a time to take it seriously with the stuff that's going on with the NBA in China for sure. But in the long run, we cover a, f- a freaking game and there's no reason not to have fun in my opinion that's awesome and yeah you you know you hear zach low I'm, I'm i'm just assuming do you listen to low post i mean i i assume oh yeah that's a, that that is probably the best nba podcast out there yeah it's, it's fantastic and you listen to him and he says like i just can't even check my mentions he goes i do every once in a while he's like i just can't do it and i don't blame him and i know he's on that level where it's like you know he could tweet out I just gave my daughter some cereal, and people will come at him with like crazy basketball stuff. Why aren't you watching film of the Charlotte Hornets picking ball? <laughs> exactly, you haven't talked about the Hornets in months. What are you doing, giving your daughter breakfast? So you know it is. It gets pretty crazy out there in Twitter, but that's why we love it, and that's why we sometimes hate it in a loving way. Um, real quick, I want to I want to touch on this because I think my listeners who do follow me and Sports Blog New York on Twitter. Um, they see these because I retweet them all the time and I quote tweet them and I try to give my best version of context to what NBA math can do. As somebody, you know, you, you work with the creator, your podcast uh, runs through NBA math. Um, can you explain the total points added thing a little bit better than maybe I do on Twitter sometimes? Because I love it and I try to tell people, take this with a grain of salt. But if you think Mitchell Robinson's been killing it and now he's skyrocketed on the total points added chart, like be happy about it. You know, it doesn't mean everything, but it means something. Can you give a little bit of context to NBA Matt's uh, key tool there? Yeah. So uh, I one won't take credit for it. The uh, founder and a good friend of mine, Adam Frommel, came up with it. It is derived from box plus minus, but it's, it's more cumulative. So you're showing what total value a player adds over the course of a season. And so, yes, it does rest on volume, but it's also, you know, that can show you, um, one who might be available the most in the season and availability is part of whatever conversation you're ultimately having, but two, just who's contributing so much at, at both ends of the floor in these, in these volumes. And then also there's a clear separation is, is their player only contributing on offense and, and not defense. And like any catch all metric, it, it has its flaws. Their uh, rebounding totals can definitely inflate it. But I think when you look at the standings each and every year, yeah, there's a couple of surprise players, but we're always talking about those players in the national discourse as standout guys. And when you look at the tippy top, it's usually the best players in the league. And so it's just another nice snapshot to see how a player or how the league is faring in that catch-all form. It should never be the only thing that you cite. But again, when you look at the returns, it definitely, with the players that are there, it tracks. Even even defense, which is super hard to quantify and just hard to judge in general, you can see on the defensive point saved uh, that a lot of these guys in there are the ones that you would recognize or think are, are going to be the best defenders in basketball. And of course, it has its flaws. Russell Westbrook is going to rate highly in defensive point saves because Steven Adams used, used to help him get all the defensive rebounds. Right. Uh, but it's just, again, like real plus minus, like uh, if people still, I don't really use PR as much anymore, mm-hmm. but you know, there's, there's BPM, there's value over replacement player. 
um, 538 has its own projections, the Raptor projections now, the Draymond projections for, for defense. I, I, ne- I love all these catch-all things. It's just it's more information, and I think where we run into the problem is where we use one of them as sort of this, like, look at this. This means this. But uh, the graphs that Adam tweets out definitely help contextualize what's happening, and they're super fun when he's going to use players' heads as, as the data points. That's always fun as well. It is. It really is. If you talk to Adam, tell him that he has a big fan over here. P. Kennedy loves the charts that he puts out or that <laughs> NBA math puts out. I really do. And I, I told you this before I started recording. I get – uh, as much feedback on that as any other statistical thing I ever tweet out. I know I use the basketball reference. Um, uh, what's it? The advanced? What is it? Um, the uh, wins, the win shares, right? That's a basketball reference. I like that one too a lot, and I think that also when you look at it at the end of the year, it's all the guys you expect. And I think some big guys do benefit from these statistic, uh, these analytical driven cumulative things. They always get a higher defensive rating than any good defensive guard. It's just the nature of the beast, like you said, with the rebounds and some of those stats. I, I love it, though. When you see something during the week, and then you check Twitter, and you see one of these charts, you're like, damn, you know, I thought Sabonis was killing it. And now there, <laughs> there he is on the top of uh, the, the bigs chart on NBA Math. So I think it's awesome. So shout out to them, and uh, shout out to your guy, Adam. That, that's awesome stuff. Uh, one last thing that I want to talk about. We were going to do Knicks and Nets, but we're getting a little bit shorter on time here. So I want to talk about the Knicks. I think the Nets are more of a national talking point this year. And this is Sports Block New York podcast. We talk a lot of Knicks here. You're a New York guy as well, even though you cover the whole league. So let's do a quick little Knicks preview here. Um, and if you want to hear Dan's full perspective on the Knicks and the entire um, Northeast, what's it called? The Atlantic Division with the Raptors and the Nets and everybody, check out his podcast, Hardwood Knox. But Dan, the New York Knicks and the jokes about all their power forwards and their um, log jam of below average point guards and all this stuff that gets joked about with their roster. What are you really expecting from this team? Maybe not even in regards to win totals, but just look, culture, feel, and some of the players that you think can assert themselves as true NBA guys. I don't know what to expect from their culture. I know Marcus Morris is trying to set this toughness kind of culture, but uh, I mean... I'll believe it when I kind of see it there. I I really, what I'm looking for, one, which will directly contribute to which of these youngsters are going to play well, if any of them, is how are they going to juggle the minutes for the veterans for the development of the young guys? Are they going to try and go out there and win games where we're going to see closing lineups that might not have R.J. Barrett or Kevin Knox on the floor? I don't think it'll get to that point, but you are going to have to sacrifice some immediacy um, to make sure that these guys come along. And the Knicks have always really struggled with that. Uh, they, they always seem to trade away their their young, promising prospects for that reason. And it's even with Frank Nielakina. Has not been a good NBA player, but he also hasn't been put in this consistent role. He's He's played minutes, but he's never been put in this consistent role. And are they willing to do that with Kevin Knox, who wasn't great last year, but certainly looks the part when he has the ball in his hands? They've talked about playing R.J. Barrett at point guard. That's something that they should absolutely try because if you don't trust his outside jump shot, which they can't, you need him to be that DeMar DeRozan type player where he's just so dangerous out of the pick and roll because he can change his pace and also find his teammates. You need to do those sort of experiments. Uh, you need to let Mitchell Robinson stay on the court through his his growing pains unless one of them is, I'm just not going to try. But it's never really been that with him. He right. he fouled a lot last year. He's and been he, he's trying started. too much, actually. <laughs> right. And he cut down on his fouls towards the end of the season. So – I I want to see how invested they are in really grooming these youngsters, and it's a little bit complicated with some of the players they signed. You know, you shouldn't have a problem leaving Alfred Payton on the bench, but it gets a little iffy with 
Julius Randle's young. He's not old. He's not really – he's still young. But the, the fit is so weird. Now you have R.J. Barrett and Kevin Knox and Dennis Smith Jr., all these guys who uh, thrive with the ball in their hands. Kevin Knox is probably the best off-ball player there or at least played off the ball most in college. How does that really all come together? And so I'm wondering if the setup of the roster might be a little bit disingenuous to guys like Barrett and Knox reaching their ceilings. But the easy – and short answer to this question would be of the players I'm expecting the most from for them is, is Mitchell Robinson. I think he's going to end up being a defensive monster. And when you have a big who can uh, close out on a jump shot and act, uh, effectively block jump shots, but also really get back to the rim and defend three guys essentially in one possession, that's, that's really huge. And so if he is just a little bit more disciplined, doesn't chase as many blocks that aren't there, uh, this could end up being a linchpin for for a really good defense not this season i don't think the knicks are going to be a great defensive team this season but just in general he looks like someone he looks the part of of the the back line a solid back line for what could be a really good nba defense Uh, yeah i couldn't agree more i think with mitchell robinson the chasing blocks thing will become a theme especially if they start getting burned on offensive rebounds i think that's where julius randall really needs to step up his game because if mitch is chasing all over the place for for these block totals that he's able to put up, but it's leaving the rim exposed, which happened from time to time last year, that's dangerous. And I think if every 10, 15 games he starts to do it a little bit less and a little bit less and becomes more disciplined like a Rudy Gobert-type uh, player, I mean, his offensive upside is really, you know, it's defined because we know what he can do with the ball near the rim. He can finish dunks. He has sneaky good touch. He has awesome hands. I love that he can catch balls all over the place in alley-oops and tight windows. Uh, if he can add this jump shot that he's talking about, that'll be pretty cool to watch. Uh, he's the number one, I think, most excited player Knicks fans are to see. Uh, so Mitchell Robinson is definitely up there. Uh, the thing about Randall and Barrett I find really interesting is Barrett's kind of mini Julius Randall. Obviously, they're both lefties, but taking that aside, their style of play is not very perimeter-based, even though they can handle the ball out there. They're trying to get in. They're trying to get downhill. They're trying to bounce off people, finish around the rim. They're both pretty solid passers. Uh, I think Barrett can actually make that one of the focal points of his game is his ability to play make for others. Uh, even though he struggled with that, with the weird fit they had in Duke, I think he has that in his bag. Do you think that they're too similar and they kind of need the ball to do to do well? And then that takes away from the development of Dennis Smith Jr. and Alfred Payton and Frank Nilakina. It definitely could. I think Randall and Barrett alone can work. And even if you throw Kevin Knox in there, it's when, you know, you you just Dennis Smith Jr. just almost seems like too much. I know it's only adding one player and he's he shot OK on catch and shoot threes in Dallas. But that's where it just becomes overkill. And Randall did shoot OK from three last year, 34.4 percent on adequate volume. And he showed that he can kind of run the offense. But then you really do need Barrett and Knox to be able to do stuff off the ball and and that overlap again when you're talking about just two players it, it's not a huge problem when one of them's as inexperienced as barrett maybe it is a little bit because it makes the knicks easier to defend against when randall does have the ball if you don't consider barrett an off-ball threat so i'm very interested to see what their most used lineups end up looking like how are they clo- who are they closing games with is there any semblance of continuity there to how they're running their rotations because there wasn't really last season and maybe that'll help Barrett if he's playing most of his minutes against Julius Randle then you develop this this chemistry um he'll 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 be forced to do some things off the ball maybe they can get him moving 
um, and, and trying to make these cuts if Randall's posting up or again, you hope that his jump shot uh, really starts to fall because Randall's that bowling ball who could get into the paint and set up these looks for, for outside shooters. And if he is open, maybe that helps bring along his, his range just a little bit better. Should Randall be able to create time for him? So there's definitely that good, bad match there. It's when you start mixing everybody else into it, where you, you start to wonder because even Mitchell Robinson, not a ball dominant player, but until we see this three point shot in action, not a floor spacer. And so now all of a sudden, if you're playing with Barrett, Randall, and Robinson, you have three below average shooters. And if the other two guys are Dennis Smith and Kevin Knox, you don't have a single above average shooter on the floor. And that's where offenses can get clunky and bogged down. Right. And that's where Bobby Portis and Wayne Ellington and Reggie Bullock are going to have to play roles here. But then that goes right back into our conversation of does playing those veterans in Ellington and Bullock and, and those guys take away from Knox's development. And that's a really, really tight rope to walk across and a quick callback to what we were talking about with the nuggets and Mike Malone having to balance out this some, uh, you know, 13, 14 guys who are actual NBA rotational uh, pieces. It's similar, but not in a good way for the Knicks where they have maybe 12 guys who they think can be NBA rotational pieces and they have to figure out that right balance. And Fisdale has a lot to figure out there because like you said, the Knicks have struggled with this in the past where their draft picks are not getting the burn they need. They're not getting the, the closing minutes they need, and we end up trading them or they don't resign after one contract. The Knicks haven't resigned a first-round pick since freaking the early 2000s or something like that. So Fizdale has a tall task ahead of him. Do you look at Fizz as a guy who can figure this out? He kind of made his his way in this league after the Heat stuff with a Memphis team that used over 20 players throughout the season and made the playoffs. Now, granted, they had Conley and Gasol, two foundational pieces, but he was mixing and matching, wheeling and dealing. Does he have that in him with this Knicks roster? I honestly have no idea. It's something that you kind of have to wait and see for. It didn't seem he didn't do anything groundbreaking last year, but you also don't know what the mandate is from the front office for him. And if he starts, the the, the only thing he can really do wrong to me is if you kowtow to the veterans too much. You know, if we're seeing lineups with Randall and Marcus Morris uh, in there together and Bobby Portis and, and you have Mitchell Robinson on the bench during crucial minutes or you're not, more specifically, R.J. Barrett and Kevin Knox who need those on-ball reps, if they're not in there to close games, th- that's where things just really become an issue. And it'll be easy for it not to be an issue at the beginning of the season because everything's rosy. You just chalk it up to to growing pains, learning curves. It's in the middle of the season when you get into December, January, February, where it gets really tough. And are they going to, are they going to stick, stick to their guns of, of developing these players? And what makes it even more complicated is some of the guys that they did sign who are veterans, you can argue are potential long-term pieces because neither Portis nor Randall is especially old. So there are just a lot of questions they have to answer. And I know they've talked about what their priority is going to be, but I think you want to be able to watch the Knicks, see an identity, see that there's a culture, see that there's a rotation you can count on. Uh, and and that's working, at least to some degree, where it's not out of stubbornness that David Fisdale wouldn't just change his rotation and is, is playing the the wrong guy. So it's really it's tough to judge from here because I have no idea what this team is is going to look like or or how they're going to be run this season. For sure. I mean, it could go one of two ways. It could be midway through the season and Knicks fans are on Twitter saying, how are we not getting this guy more minutes? How, like how is uh, Dennis Smith jr. On the bench? How is Mitch on the bench? How is Knox on the bench? 
Or what could happen in the idealistic world is that these guys truly take on the competition. And we've heard Smith, Jr., Peyton, and Nilakina all talk about how having all these point guards there, and if Frank Nilakina's a point guard or not is another conversation, but having all <laughs> the having all these guards there in the same, you know, practice facility working at it is leading to good positive competition where they're getting better and they're saying, looking in the mirror, you know, I have to perform or I'm losing the job to this guy or I have to perform, I'm losing my minutes to that guy. And I think that could be very positive, but it could also go really poorly when you look at a guy like Dennis Smith who is a year away from hopefully signing an extension in his eyes and Alfred Payton, the same thing. So it, there's a lot of contention here with this roster and this makeup and, and the power forward jokes are a joke, but it's also true. Taj Gibson, Bobby Portis, Marcus Morris, Julius Randle. That's four power forwards. You know, there's no other there's no other way to skin it. And those guys all need to play. It's gonna be damn interesting. I cannot freaking wait to see it all break down from the Knicks front, the entire NBA front. Uh Dan, you have any last words on the Knicks before we start to close out here? No, I am uh I'm I have no feel for RJ Barrett's NBA game yet. So I'm I, I really want to see him play and, and see how that ends up working out and I, I heard you with a little chuckle before when i mentioned frank nilakina in that point guard room uh is, it, is that a chuckle or what do you what are your feelings i will i Frankie will Smokes? die for frank nilakina yeah i he is such a good defender already and i think it's a basketball tragedy that they haven't been able to just carve out a consistent role for him i understand he's been historically bad offensively he does have sort of a smoothness to his game though when he's handling the ball but doesn't make the greatest decisions yet for a team that's always lacked good defenders, or I won't always, but for for a while now has lacked really good defenders, I just would have unleashed him. And if he is bad, particularly last year, I know he was dealing with some injuries, then it makes it easier to trade him or at least justify it to the fan base because you still have a distressed asset now. They haven't conserved his value at all. And then you there's been the appearance that they really haven't given him an ample opportunity just yet. So right. for, for someone who could defend and this is the league at large, I would always be willing to give them a chance. Um, so we'll see how invested they are in him. I know he hasn't really had the best preseason after uh, faring pretty, gaining some clout. Uh, uh, in FIBA, oh yeah. yeah. In FIBA. I don't know why I couldn't think of the word. So <laughs> there's just, there's so many up and downs with him, but I, I hope that they, they're still marginally invested in him at least. I'm glad you're a stan or at least stan adjacent for Frankie Smokes. Um, I'm with you there. I think, you know, when you draft this guy and everyone says he's a project, he's two years away, he's three years away, he's an 18 years old, youngest guy in the draft. These things get thrown out of the, uh, like, out so fast they get thrown out. And you have to remind yourself sometimes that he's still one of the younger guys in this league, and he hasn't played a lot of professional basketball yet. And, and there's something to be had there. If you ask me, is Frank Nilakina in the NBA um, for the next 10 years, or is he out after next year? I'm going with he's in the NBA for the next 10 years. I think there's teams that would trade for him in a heartbeat. What they would give up is obviously another question. Is it a late second? Is it a throwaway uh, cap filler? Who knows what it is? But there are teams who would be more than willing to take him on as a project and actually develop him. And we've seen guys uh, leave the Knicks and find some success in the past. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I cannot wait. Um, anything you're working on for Bleacher Report that you want to shout out on the pod before we say goodbye? Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm rolling out my NBA 100 series for the start of the season. Point guards and shooting guards are all ready out. Small forwards will probably be out by the time people listen to this. So it will culminate in my top 100 players of the year on the 
21st, the day before the regular season. So be on the lookout for that. Dan Favali. Find him on Twitter, at Dan Favali. Find his podcast, Hardwood Knox, on anywhere you listen to podcasts. And at Blue Wire Pods, which host a Hardwood Knox. Any one little tidbit, maybe something maybe something that's out already, one little piece of your uh, NBA 100 um, project there that you want to give out to the listeners here, maybe intrigue them to go give it a click. Um, putting you on the spot uh, there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what would. Intri- I don't want to make anybody mad, and I think that's all you could sometimes do with these things, no matter how much thought you put into them. Uh, I will say to the Phoenix Suns fans who have generally not liked what I've written that Devin Booker is higher than he was on any of the other rankings that came out this offseason. Perfect. I think Devin Booker is a player of contention on NBA Twitter. Some people love him. Some people love to hate him. And that's that's a good good little tidbit right there. All right, Dan Favali. Follow him on Twitter. Hit him up. Don't troll him too hard. He gets some nasty stuff sometimes. Uh, but, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the Sports Blog New York Podcast. I had an absolute blast. Hope you did as well. I hope you enjoy the week leading up, and I hope it's not too crazy for you for the NBA season starting just a week away. No problem. Thank you for having me, Pete. I had a blast. That's it. Sports Blog New York Podcast signing out. Have a great day.